the ditches look exactly like the canals of Mars. The fish do not know these are drainage ditches. They think they are creeks. After a time, some of them would nose up the ditches in the spring when the runoff water was pouring out, push further and further up, and lay eggs, and the spawning ground was imprinted on the new fish, and then still more new fish, until the ditches became an accepted spawning area for thousands and thousands of them. Walleyes and northern pike run first, and because the snagging at the dam is going on at the same time, they are not bothered. But after the walleyes and northerns come the suckers, and by that time the snagging at the dam is over. Then we would take spears or bows and work the ditches for suckers. It was not easy. Using a spear with eight or ten tines, it seemed impossible to miss. But the fish could move sideways, or appear to, and many times they were not where they seemed to be when the spear was jabbed. After a bit, a technique involved, and for some reason it had to be relearned each year. The spear had to be held with the point in the water just over their backs and pushed forward and down almost delicately, too far and the spear would hit the rocks lining the bottom of the ditch and bend or break. Too little and the spear would not penetrate far enough for the barbs to take hold. Shooting them with a bow was also tricky at first. There were no fish arrows then to buy in the stores and no money to buy them if they had been available. Bows were of lemon wood with fiber backing, and arrows were homemade from cedar shafts that cost a nickel each and turkey feathers. A small hole could be drilled through the front of a field point, and a tiny nail put through the hole and bent back to make a barb. Then a forty-pound test fishing line was tied from another hole in the point back to the reel on the bow. The reel was a plastic water glass taped to the bow so that it tapered down to the front. The line had to be carefully wound on the glass each time, one wrap laid precisely next to the last so it would spin off, this was before spinning reels as well, which can be used now, without making the arrow fly off sideways. It was all very involved, and if a shot was missed, it might take five minutes to get ready for another one. For that reason, we liked to get very close before shooting. And finally, one boy found that you didn't need the reel or line at all. The ditch was shallow, and if you shot down, the arrow would go through the fish and pin them to the bottom. There was no limit on suckers. Gunny sacks were carried on a cord around the neck to drop the fish in when they were speared or shot, working up the ditch in the spring sunshine, walking in the icy water until our legs were blue. Nobody could afford hip boots or waders, when we would stop and build a fire and warm feet and legs, working the ditches that way until the sacks weighed sixty or seventy pounds. When the sack became too heavy to carry, we would stop and use a pocket knife to gut all the fish, then continue on until even with gutted fish, the weight was too much, and the fish would be loaded on bicycles as a burrow would be loaded, huge bags on the sides and top to push the miles home. The suckers were not only for direct cooking and eating. An old man, forty at least, had a smoke shed set up on the edge of town. If you helped him, he would smoke your fish for half of them. The suckers had to be split the long way down the back with a sharp knife and coarse salt hand-rubbed into the inside meat. Then they were hung over poles in the smoke shed, and a round-the-clock fire had to be made outside in the fire pit. 
A buried stovepipe carried the smoke into the smoke shed from the hardwood branches that were burned. Hours turned to days, turned to weeks, or so it seemed. The sucker run in the ditches lasted at most two weeks, but it seemed much longer. A constant procession of boys and bicycles moved from the ditches back into the old man's smoke shed, and it did not matter that he was using the boys' work to get free fish. Did not matter that we spent days with eyes burning from the smoke, spent days sitting in clouds of smoke, days and nights stoking and damping the fire to keep the smoke moving evenly through the racks of fish. Did not matter that he kept half, and maybe more than half, to sell in the stores and at church suppers and to an endless line of cars that came to buy from him. None of it mattered except the fish. When they were done, when they were all shot with arrows and speared and gutted and carried and salted and smoked, and at last were done, it was worth it. First tastes were compared, measured against each other the way wine is compared. The meat is soft hard, gentle leathery, golden brown, the color of caramel and deep honey mixed, and simply has to be eaten. It comes off in strips, tastes delicately of salt and smoke, not of wood, but the taste of the smoke, so that it seems that the forest itself is in the meat of the fish. A bite is like being there in the woods. A bite is part of a memory. Except that the meat, the work in the meat, is too expensive to eat. The way farm workers cannot afford to eat the meat they grow and must instead eat venison and sell the beef and pork for money. The fish must be sold. The work in the cold ditches must be sold. If the taste of fresh cooked fish means spring to the town, the taste of fresh smoked fish.